This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. According to the new book, Designing Reality, we are in the process of going through a third digital revolution. Things like the maker movement, 3D printing, and the Internet of Things are bringing new level into our physical world. And the growth of the so-called fab labs makes many of these changes a virtual, pun intended, certainty. The book, as we mentioned, Designing Reality, written by a trio of brothers. Two of the three join us today. Alan Gershenfeld, who is the president of Eline Media and former chairman of Games for Change. And also Joel Kutcher Gershenfeld, who is a professor in the School of Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, as well as a former president of the Labor and Employment Relations Association. And it's great to have them joining us here today. Alan and Joel, thank you very much for your time today. A pleasure to be here. Thank you both. Uh, So uh, for those people that really don't follow this, uh, Alan, I'll start with you. This third digital revolution has really happened because of what? Well, it's actually a continuum. We've had a a revolution in digital computation. We've had a revolution in digital communication. Uh, And both have changed the world. And they've actually... Uh, happened over the last half century. We we use Gordon Moore's 1965 paper as a powerful point where he was looking back at 10 years and observing the doubling of digital computing performance and simply projecting 10 years forward. If that curve, if that exponential curve continued, what would happen? And he predicted things like mobile phones and smart cars, not because he was Nostradamus. He was simply observing a past trend of technology doubling and projecting forward. Well, it's happened for 50 years with close to a billion-fold improvement. The third digital revolution in fabrication, our middle brother, Neil, who runs the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT and actually wrote the book Fab that introduced a lot of this technology to the world, he's also looked back 10 years and seen the doubling of digital fabrication performance. And when we project forward 10, possibly 20, 30, or 40 years, and a potential billion-fold improvement in digital fabrication performance, it will once again change the world, and that is the third digital revolution. So, Joel, I mean, where are the areas that we're going to be, that the the average American will be able to see really firsthand these changes coming forward? Well, if you're involved in a community fab lab or makerspace, you're starting to see it already. For most people, you barely see it, except for press reports on 3D printing, which is just one small piece of the puzzle. But where this is headed, it will affect how we live, learn, work, and play. Uh, Imagine in communities being able to design and make what you need locally, cutting global supply chains, still being globally connected, but locally self-sufficient. There are a growing number of communities that are beginning to embrace this rapid prototyping technology as a vehicle to make hydroponics for food, to make furniture, to make other things, uh, and ultimately uh, to really rethink the very nature of uh, who owns the means of production. Well, and I guess to a degree, it sounds like is achieving that thought process or that understanding is one of the key components when you're thinking about whatever the community may be to not only be able to think about maybe one or two elements, but be able to think about 10, 15, 20, correct? Well, that's right. And increasingly, uh, there are cities that started with Barcelona three years ago. There's now about 14 cities in two countries 
that have set a goal by the year 2040 of being globally connected but locally self-sufficient. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like to join in via Twitter, you're more than welcome to, at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So even though, Alan, it seems like this is a, a kind of a global understanding, is there enough of an understanding here in the U.S., thinking specifically of, of our listeners and of, I guess, to a degree, Canada as well, of these ongoing changes that are happening in places like Barcelona? You know, I, I, I think there are pockets of knowledge, but largely the third digital revolution, much like the first two digital revolutions back in 1965, is largely going unnoticed or um, not fully understood. As you mentioned in your intro to this piece, you talked about 3D printing, uh, and Joel alluded to this. 3D printing is a very powerful additive technology, and it's one component of, of, of a fab lab. But there are also subtractive processes like laser cutters and shop bots. And then there's embedded computing. And right now, the fab lab is an integration of additive, subtractive, embedded computing with a global network that is sharing a similar footprint of not just hardware, but CAD, computer-aided design, and CAM, computer-aided manufacturing, creates a footprint that's interoperable, and you have something of, a, of an Internet of bits and atoms. And that's partially what enables the, ex, the exponential propagation of fab labs and the global sharing but the local self-sufficiency. So that's large, amidst all the hype around 3D printing, that landscape is misunderstood. And then the book uh, goes into – it kind of gives a peek uh, around the corner into the future of the research roadmap for digital fabrication, which goes from community fabrication to personal fabrication to yeah. ubiquitous and universal fabrication. And in that process, there's a switch from the actual materials used in the process. Right now, you'll use various forms of wood or MDF, uh, plastics, both environmentally friendly and unfriendly. Um, over time, those actual materials will become smarter. The consumables will become smarter. So you'll have smart digital materials that can form and reform. And that's also part of the roadmap and part of the path to sustainability. So while there's awareness and press around 3D printing, fab labs, and maker spaces, um, folks don't necessarily understand the full capability of a fab lab and the, and, the, and the roadmap within the next 10, 20, 30 years. Well, if you wouldn't mind, for those people that are hearing that term really for the first time, what is a fab lab? So let me um, dive in on that. Uh, if you walked into a typical fab lab, it might be the si twice the size of a woodworking or metalworking wood shop. You would see some computers that are used for design. You would see a laser cutter, as Alan was saying, a 3D printer, a milling machine, a 3D scanner. You would see a space where you can do electronics and make circuit boards to make programmable products. And um, it wouldn't look that different from the rapid prototyping facility that a manufacturing organization would have. The difference is, of course, that it would be open to the community. It might be in a school, in a library, in a community college, in a university setting, or a museum. Um, and the important thing is, as Alan points out, the roadmap extends 30, 40, 50 years into the future, but there are things that you can do right now. Let's take the other side of the state from Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. a steel city that, you know, had 
fallen on hard times with the decline of traditional uh, manufacturing. About 10 years ago, a series of pancake breakfasts brought educators together uh, because they said kids weren't learning in the way they used to. Right. And they shifted to focus more on project-based learning. Today, there's 2,000 educators in that region, um, which includes western Pennsylvania and parts of Ohio, uh, and there's about 200 fab labs and maker spaces, and they're connected to the local schools, to Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh, to community colleges. And as a region, it's, of course, become a center for robotics. And this digital fabrication capability is today part of a new project-based way of learning that's integral to that emerging ecosystem. And a lot of people have said we need to look at, at our, our education and what we're learning and how we're learning it, Joel, anyway. So, I mean, seemingly it feels like we're almost bringing a couple of different elements together at, at the perfect time. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the things about Fab Labs, that yes, they are a great place to design and make things. It also turns out they're a great place for people to connect together and collaborate, uh, both locally and internationally because people are sharing designs and ideas all around the world through the digital communications connections. Um, so Fab Labs turn out to be a center for collaboration that really bridges across generations, across communities uh, in ways that are very special. Because well, – go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. Yeah, one, one thing to add to it, and this is this was part of the challenge and the fun of writing the book, which and it's it's an interesting experience to write a book with with two brothers. <laughs> yes, but, you know, Neil Neil has always been on the vanguard of technology and digital fabrication technology, and really this this nexus between bits and atoms. Um, but he is a techno utopist, like a, a lot of people on the vanguard of technology. One thing that Joel and I do, and this really came out of many conversations we've had over the years, is we also look at the, the challenges and tensions in the global Fab Lab ecosystem. As Joel mentioned, when you go to a Fab Lab, it's an exhilarating experience. A well-run Fab Lab um, has all of the benefits of experiential learning, community empowerment. You're connected to a global community that right. loves to make things. It really is a, a, a powerful experience, but, the, but digital fabrication is hard. So we talk, first of all, about access. I mean, right now, there's over a thousand fab labs reaching, you know, a couple hundred thousand, perhaps a few million people, but right. there's seven billion people on the planet. So right. we do look at, could there be a, a, a debilitating fab divide that actually makes the current digital divides even worse? And we kind of go into a deep dive as to how to start to think about avoiding a, a fab divide now. Imagining going back to 1965, reading Gordon Moore's paper and saying, we need to start thinking about a digital divide now, not 20, 30 years later. Uh, we also look at literacy. What is fab literacy? Right now, digital literacy is still something we're trying to define a half century after Moore's paper. So we need to start thinking, what does it mean to be fab literate when that's going to mediate so much of how things are made in the future? Then we look at things like an enabling ecosystem, how to cultivate fab mentors, how to cultivate interoperability. Right now, there's a lot of friction in the CAD, CAM, additive, subtractive, embedded computing process because these are very different. These traditionally have been different systems that don't necessarily work well together. Right. And so designing standards and protocols is much easier early rather than later when they become hardened. And lastly, risk mitigation. You know, everything from bad, bad people making bad things in a fab lab, which certainly uh, you start to see press around, to 
other areas of risk that could emerge in the ecosystem. Again, now is the time to begin addressing those. Is it is it a hard is it a hard idea to bring forward the the concept of being able to be far enough ahead of the curve to be forward looking, you know, 30 or 40 years down the road without almost being retrospective and, and being behind the, the curve? So in society, um, institutions are the things that hold what you might call the rules of the game. Right. And, and institutions are a product of pattern behaviors that essentially become codified into here's how we do it. Uh, the institutions around digital communication and computation were slow to emerge, and as a result, we're playing catch-up now on all the online bullying and complicated um, uh, weaponized information and, and just the basic digital divides around access and literacy, as Alan was saying. What we're saying in the book is that now is the time to begin thinking about these patterns. Mm -hmm. um, institutions need to do two things. They need to help create value and they need to mitigate risk. Uh, the creating value is all about people being able to design and make what they need. Uh, the risk is that um, there are uh, serious risks. That probably the most troubling is biofab, using digital fabrication abilities to print biological uh, things. It's mm -hmm. beneficial if you can print a new liver, which in labs people can do. It's not so good if you print um, a, a disease that, that uh, gets out of the lab into the community. Sure. Um, and so we need to create the institutional patterns, the new arrangements to have conversations, to have advocacy, to have voice, to have agency with respect to the technology. We are joined by uh, Alan uh, Gershenfeld and Joel Kutcher. Gershenfeld, they are uh, two of the three authors of the book Designing Reality, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and we can bring it up on the show through that manner, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So with, with all of this change, how do you think that this is going to change what we know as work uh, here, the concept of work here in the, in the United States and, and to a degree around the world? Well, I'll start, and I know Alan will have more things to add. Um, we think of work as involving getting paid to do a job, going to a workplace, having a supervisor, uh, having a hierarchical structure, and um, having an, a person who's the boss or the owner. And in some respects, uh, there will still be services and things that you will need to do for which paid labor will be important in the years to come. Um, it will be a blended economy. But what's interesting is that increasingly there are things that you can design and make. And again, this technology is accelerating um, in its capability uh, that for which uh, – forms of barter and exchange and just community resources um, will represent the way in which you do that. And so the very notion of work itself, it may be that you can um, do uh, paid work less and consume less and instead uh, create more. Alan? Yeah, you know, for, for years, for example, in indigenous communities have been able to, to 
understand their environment, understand their local materials, and largely make what they consume. And there's, I think, a global movement like the Fab Cities movement that's looking uh, back to that sort of true north. You know, how can we increasingly use local materials to largely make what we can consume? And as Joel mentions, that leads to a really interesting blend that's going to emerge. None of this stuff just happens overnight. Different systems will blend together. But the idea that um, there's more optionality in terms of um, making more um, of what you consume, perhaps, you know, with, with the gig economy, with more protections around the gig economy, um, uh, you can have a more blended lifestyle uh, where it's not this sort of dichotomy between work and not work. Um, as Joel mentioned, there will always be jobs for which technology or people in technology are, are, are better than just technology itself. But we're introducing a new component, which is if you can increasingly, through the, the power of these tools and networks, make what you can consume, there could be a more uh, blended approach where you can, uh, you know, have more free time to connect. Uh, there can be more community-type fabrication where communities work together to, to make what they need. Right. Another really interesting element that's emerging um, is this idea of looking at, at the materials around you uh, and creating uh, global sites where, or, or social networks where if I live in a certain region, like I live in the desert in Arizona, I, I get knowledge as to how to use local materials in the local fabrication process. And I think that's a really interesting emergent capability that will, will, will help change the nature of how we work and play in the future. Well, and I would think, Alan, that, that it would also lead to the potential of new and interesting ideas or products because of the fact that some of the elements that may be there in Arizona may be different to what I know here in Philadelphia, correct? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fab movement enables folks to make products for a market of one yourself, a market of a few, your family or your community, or possibly for a global market. So this idea of personal fabrication optimized for a local region or a local family is definitely an attribute of, of the fab ecosystem. So, Joel, how do you think that, that this potential, we talked about it impacting work, how do you think this, this impacts kind of societal norms moving forward? Well, let's take a function in the workplace that we know well, the human resource function. Right. That depends on there being a, a workplace that has a human resource person. Now, the, the work that that person does, which is ensuring fair treatment in the workplace, uh, if the union's involved, a union is involved in that as well, uh, ensuring health and safety, uh, helping to have career paths well-defined, attending to training and development, all of those things um, depend on there being something called a workplace uh, in the first place. These fab labs uh, aren't a workplace, and so they're not subject to health and safety regulation, uh, the laws governing fair treatment, discrimination, and so on. Uh, and yet people are spending a lot of time there, and those issues and needs are real. So that's a place where the institutions need to be realigned to match the new realities to, frankly, protect against um, the parts of our human nature that are uh, not always the best version of ourselves. At the same time, the technology itself will be eventually in the 5 or 10 or 15-year time frame moving out of the lab as we go along this roadmap into more personal technology, which could be located anywhere. And 
again, we have to ask ourselves, how do we ensure fair treatment, safe conditions, and other things that are societal norms that we value in a world where increasingly the ability to make things is mobile? So there has to be an even higher level of self-awareness, it would seem, correct? Self-awareness and uh, checks and balances, mechanisms for engagement and agency. Great having you both. Go ahead, Alan. We've got about a minute left. Well, maybe maybe one interesting thing to end on is right now in society, there seems to be this big dichotomy between globalism and localism. What fab labs are are almost a boundary object where – Bits can be global, and we can share no global knowledge, but uh, atoms can be local, and self-sufficiency can be local. And I think it's a way to break down some of those hardened divides. Great having you both with us. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for your time. Joel, thank you as well. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Alan Gershenfeld, Joel Kutcher Gershenfeld, uh, two of the three authors on the book Designing Reality, uh, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.